Jason Johannes. Welcome to another episode of the All Things Blues and Southern Rock Podcast, now on Pantheon Podcast, which can uh, serve your needs within many, many different podcasts. Uh, so go there and check them out. Uh, we're proud to be a part of this. With me is Jason. What's up, man? Hey, how you doing? Let's just we'll do a shout out. We'll do a we'll do a, a commercial for the Hook Rocks with Jay Scott, Brian, who guess who was just a guest on the previous episode we were just guests on on that episode that's grand right time was said by all it's always when we talk to jay it like it takes different turns off the freeway <laughs> like... well we're fortunate that you were there a respectable gentleman who mm-hmm. made sure why the conversation got a little off the rails it didn't go all the way off the rails i tried that's all i can do is try <laughs> we're the kids jay and I are the kids you couldn't put together in class because we would you know fight off of each other and get in trouble and you were there to make sure we didn't get detention yeah yeah so i was uh very happy to get uh just got tickets uh, this saturday for leonard skinnard and then on the 20 on till the 25th whiskey myers and then uh september 13th is them dirty roses and henriette minnesota at Ryder saloon and i almost forgot to mention tesla on the 25th at dakota magic casino so i'm looking forward what to those shows yeah, man, that is a great run of shows. Great run of shows. I'm very, I'm actually very jealous of you. And then I think later on in August, you have LA Guns coming LA through. LA Guns, yeah, that's right. Yep, for sure. So, that is awesome. And well, <laughs> da- so we've got Skinner, you got Skinner, which our buddy Damon Johnson plays guitar in, who just announced yesterday a 30th anniversary tour of the first Brother Kane record with support from Jared James Nichols, our podcast friend. Are they going to be playing the whole record in entirety? or I haven't heard if they're going to play the entire record in the entirety or if it's just a tour to celebrate the 30th anniversary. Because I love all three Brother Kane records. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, the first one was groundbreaking. And, you know, it fit in that 90s Southern rock resurgence that we saw with, like, the Crows. But, yeah, I haven't heard. Yeah, you know, and Damon, you know, he uh, played in Alice Cooper's band. He played it with Scott Gorman. Thin Lizzy, uh, I think Scott Gorman. Black Star Riders. Yeah, leftover member from Thin Lizzy, and now he's doing the Skinner thing. And Skinner, as we know, is uh, one of the most uh, you know iconic, well-known, respected Southern rock bands, along with the Almond Brothers band. And uh, yeah, they what a great band. You know the you know live at Fillmore East is a classic, iconic. Well, where do you come in with the Almond Brothers band? Like what 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 point did you get into the Allman Brothers band? Well, probably in after when they got back together in 89. Uh, not for seven, well, seven turns was that record and then, but yeah. where it all begins, you know, was Warren and Warren Haynes and Alan Woody in the band. 
that's what I would consider their second their second peak, and then later on with uh, with Warren and Derek Trucks and O'Teal Burbridge on base. So yeah, no, that that uh, you know the eighty nine to ninety four. I can't remember how long those guys were that that lineup of Warren and Alan Woody in the band was, but the, I did see them once uh, in that lineup, and it was a great show. And Dickie played his ass off and wowed us all. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure like I came into them a lot later like I got into them through other bands through like the Black Crows and then of all bands Government Mule because I started really getting a Government Mule because of the Black Crows and everything else late 90s and that's where I I knew all my brothers band stuff like you know everybody knows some of the classic songs but I didn't really start digging into their catalog until really the late 90s so I'm definitely late to it I missed I never saw uh, Allman Brothers Band show, unfortunately. I, I particularly would have loved the scene with Trucks and Warren Haynes play, but I've seen a shit ton of Government Mules shows, so meh. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, uh, we're fortunate enough to have, uh, you know, you know, a guest that uh, can tell us all about that stuff uh, in in his books, and you know, another uh, another you know, guitar player author just like Andy Aildort that that we're we were so very fortunate to talk to before, but now we've got Alan Paul and he's, you know, got the book, you know, Brothers and Sisters, the Almond Brothers Band and the history and the inside story of the album that defined the 70s. Yeah. So like one, it's super awesome to get, um, man, like polished writers and like authors like Andy and now Alan to come on. Of course, Andy and Alan wrote uh, a Texas Flood, you know, the, the Stevie Ray Vaughan biography. We've talked about that. He wrote the first uh, Allman Brothers band book that I really loved, which was No Way Out. And now this one about the making of the Brothers and Sisters record, which was which real interesting. You'll hear some stuff on there, but it's the most um, uh, financially su success, commercially successful record of all the Allman Brothers band, of course, had Randall Man on there, which was a big hit, and Jessica and a couple other ones. But uh, I like that record. It's not my favorite record in if I never have to hear Ramblin' Man ever again, I'll be okay. It's one of those songs like from good bands that is yeah. so overplayed, like right. Enter Sandman from Metallica and like, yeah. um, you know, Stairway to Heaven, like songs you're like, okay, they've been played a bazillion times, but uh, so excited to talk to Alan because of his history with the Allman Brothers Band and it's a band, Brian, that you and I both love. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I want to point out one thing, you know, if, if you don't get enough of your fill of uh, listening to Alan Paul uh, on this podcast, you'll get to, you know, we want to uh, suggest to you guys, listeners, that you uh, also listen to Alan will be on State of America with a friends, Ian and David. That's going to be on the 25th, I believe. So uh, I think they're going to have some different stories than we have. So. Um, absolutely it'll be a great companion right you and i kind of talk about we do they'll definitely take some more angles with probably chuck lavelle and the black crows and all that so there's no reason for everybody here not to listen to the state of america when they have alan on as well now it's a great chat you guys will hear he's very articulate like just a fun guy love love talking to him yeah great guy and it also fits into like with you know just you know you know, after we've just recently talked to Matt Wake and Andrew Daly, so he's just kind of like one of those guys. So another um, rock journalist. All those guys, including Alan, are from uh, Guitar World, guitar yep. player Matt. Like they <laughs> they all write for them too. So it's it's a it's a pretty good. What did what did he call it? A fraternity of authors, as you'll hear yeah. uh, in his interview. 
And we had a great time with Alan. We can't wait until uh, he comes on again. So you guys kick back, relax, and listen to our conversation with Alan Paul. Can you tell me, tell me, friend, just exactly where I've been? Is that so much to We're here at the guest segment of the podcast, and Jason, as you guys know, is going to introduce the guest to y'all. Absolutely, and I am excited, stoked, whatever exclamatory term we can use, and I'm sure that's not the right word. If we got an author on, he'll correct me, but one of my favorite like authors right now, I've read two of his books, one on the Almond Brothers Band, one on C.B. Ray Vaughn. And he has a new book about the Allman Brothers band coming out, specifically about the making of the Brothers and Sisters record. Uh, friend of Andy Aldor, one of our friends. So obviously the guy is a cool writer, author, all around good guy, Alan Paul. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. And, and uh, I, I was just texting with Andy a second ago. So right uh, we've been friends and colleagues for uh, 30 years or, or something like that um, at Guitar World and um, you know, we go, go co-wrote a book together, as you just mentioned, I think, Texas Flood and yep. by the Stevie Ray Vaughan. And we have a band together, Friends of the Brothers, uh, playing Allman Brothers music that we've had for since 2017. So it's that six years. So Andy and I are, are pretty entwined um, and uh, he's a brilliant guitarist and I'm a guy who plays guitar. But, <laughs> <laughs> you and uh, me both. I yeah, play guitar. <laughs> yeah. But um but yeah, anyhow, great to be with you guys, and I love what you do, and obviously we have a lot of uh, mutual musical interests. That's right, man. We're really looking forward to getting into this with you, and it's cool that you know Andy, and you guys are friends, because we just really love chatting with him as well, so this could be a lot of fun. He's a he's one of the great podcast guests, because he can tell stories, and you don't have to sit there and like try to get things out of people dude he's got so many greats I mean, I mean you're his friend obviously but he's just a wonder to have on we've had him on a couple times already yeah i think sometimes some of the other guys and friends of the brothers uh get a little sick of of us uh andy and i because we both are just like swapping tail of course everyone has their own tails uh a lot of guys who've been on the road with a lot of people for a lot of years but um yeah, Andy and I have our own histories and to, together and separately. We've, we've, uh, you know, one of the reasons we became friends in the first place, uh, I worked in the office at the time and Andy did not, but um, because we had the same musical interests, more or less, or, or so much intersection, um, we just would be at the same shows all the time. And a lot of times we would do stories where I did the interview and Andy did the lesson. Um mm -hmm. So we spent a lot of time together doing that. I mean, just off the top of my head, some of those include Bob Weir, uh, Trey Anastasio, um, uh, Derek Trucks, um, Warren. I mean, it, it happened a lot. So, um, you know, that, that's part of how we developed the friendship. And then, of course, we'd usually go to the shows uh, together afterwards. Love it. Great jam bands, great guitar guitarists, man. Like some of the, the peak guys that are still killing it right now. 
Yeah, that you know, that's that's the beauty of what we've done all these years at Guitar World and 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 you know, Guitar World and Guitar Player have the same owner now, so I write for Guitar Player as well, um which was an adjustment for me because in my whole coming up years Guitar Player and Guitar for the Practicing Musician were sort of the enemy. We were out to kill them. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Brad uh, Brad Talinsky and I were pretty competitive with that stuff. Um so uh yeah it's 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 great it's been a it's been a blessing and an honor to get to you know have the career I've had and 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 work with all these people and interview all these people. Well, how did you get going with let's start with your career and how you got to kind of where you're at now and we'll get into your your book um brothers and sisters um but how yeah how did you end up where you are now what's kind of your background your history? Boy, that's a long twisty tale but um you know, I, I was, Andy and I have talked about this a lot, which is an interesting point of comparison. Andy was a guitarist, uh, first and foremost, um, right. who, you know, like many guitarists and many musicians, needed to find a steady gig to, you know, support himself. And he realized that he was good at transcriptions and he started doing that and that led him to writing and he had that joint career. Um, I was very much um, a journalist. I never really wanted to be anything other than a writer since I was about 14. So I'm lucky that it worked out because I never really had a plan B. Um, that was always my focus, not necessarily music writing. That was sort of my dream. Hold on one second. My dog is whining. I'm just going to put her out of the room. It is not an All Things Blues and Southern Rock podcast, Brian, without an animal, dogs. ours or our guests. So our, yeah. our pet families are always part yeah. of our podcast. Episodes. Well, if she would just bark a little, I'd leave her, but she gets really whiny. So I just put her <laughs> out of the room. She'll, she'll be fine for now. Uh, yeah. So I, I was always into writing. It was sort of my thing. And I was also, of course, into music. Um, I didn't really start playing guitar much until college and even after college, although I always, I always did sort of. I always, my friends were musicians. I played around with it. And I went to the University of Michigan. And in my first couple of weeks there, uh, I stumbled into a job as a first a busboy and then a, a waiter and a doorman at a bar called Rick's American Cafe, which turned out to have uh, music five nights a week. Um, most weekends uh, were blues. It was sort of on the Chicago blues circuit. So I just got really, really into blues there and live music in general, which I had always loved. I mean, since I saw my first concert, which was Super Tramp. Um, I was just retracing my history and putting them in order by going to a, a website that has all the shows at the Pittsburgh Civic Arena. And because I, I, I knew Super Tramp, of course, everyone remembers their first concert. Um, the next bunch were a daze. I knew what I had seen, but not exactly in what order. So what I determined <laughs> is that the Allman Brothers Band were about my fifth or sixth concert, um, you know, which is pretty cool. But um, I always loved that. That was that was when I was like 13. I mean, I just was passionately into music. But when I went to uh, college and I started going to Rick's, working at Rick's and then seeing these guys, it really uh, flipped my wig. I mean, I, I just loved it. I loved um, the small bar thing. And um, unfortunately, like at that time, I didn't immediately embrace Stevie Ray Vaughan because he was already playing in like bigger places. And I was going through a phase where like I only wanted to see artists in a club. Um, it was sort of a punk aesthetic, although that's not punk music I was listening to. That's where to. I'm at now in my life. Yeah. I just wanted to see people yeah. in smaller venues. Yeah, and I was really there, especially after the experiences I was having at, at Rick's, like three, four times a week. You know, so I saw Coco Taylor, Buddy Guy, oh. uh, uh, um, uh, Johnny Copeland, Albert Collins, 
Oh, Robert Robert Collins. Collins. Oh, my goodness. One of my favorites. Uh, and, and there were also some great reggae bands and other, you know, 10,000 Maniacs came there. Uh, oh, no it, kidding. Was it the Natalie Merchant version or yeah, somebody? Absolutely. Or, yep. Okay. Yeah. NRBQ. I mean, I just saw a lot of people, but oh. it was the blues guys that really took my heart away, especially a couple of them like Sun Seals and Coco Taylor. And because uh, I really liked the musicians and I would, I would enjoy talking to them a little bit. Um, and the musicians like me, because I sort of treated them like stars, you know, so they made me uh, pretty quickly like the guy in charge of the bands, you know, to go, go get their food orders and their drink orders and stuff. So um, I just realized how much I like talking to them. Um, you know, a Coco Taylor would always come in and get a nachos, you know, and she called me baby. And, you know, <laughs> and I knew that was cool then, but, uh, you know, I don't think I fully. Well, was it chicken it. or beef nachos or just like beans yeah. and cheese? What, kind of, uh, what was the order? <laughs> yeah, I don't remember. I don't think we, we, it wasn't a too fancy of a place. We probably didn't have chicken nachos. I'm just salsa and cheese. <laughs> yeah, some jalapeno. And um, very, very nice lady, really. And, and and she was an incredible performer. She always had an incredible band. She had a great lead guitar player named Eddie King, always wore a cowboy hat. Um, and it was it was powerful. And so I was doing other stuff uh, at the college newspaper for my first year or so. I did some news reporting. I was doing a lot of literary stuff because I was at that point a creative writing major. Like I interviewed Tom Wolfe and Joseph Heller, uh, Allen Ginsberg, really cool experiences. But Buddy Guy was coming to Rick's. And I went to the music editor and I said, um, you know, gave her this pitch on how great Buddy Guy was. And I said, you know, we really should be covering him. We never do any articles on all these great people coming to Rick's. And she was like, yeah, you know, that would be great. But none of our music writers know anything about blues or that kind of guitar playing. Why don't you do it? And so I was like, oh, OK. So I interviewed Buddy Guy. That was my first uh, article. Uh, I'm sorry, not my first article, but my first interview with a musician. And of course, I love Buddy. And then I went and saw him. That was the first time I had seen him. And I was completely transfixed. Um, I, like I was already really into this stuff. And the buddy guy, the combination of having done the interview and then seeing him live um, in this tiny club completely captivated me and, and, and really changed my life. And so then I just kept writing about music as much as I could. And I realized these relationships I had developed, that, like I was mentioning, where I just was friendly with these guys and was, um, you, you know, serving them nachos and, and beers and stuff. <laughs> Um, I actually could talk to them well and easily. I had that knack. So um, that that became that. And I started doing that. And then after college, I was trying to do that. I worked at a weekly newspaper in Hoboken. I was doing all this Hoboken, New Jersey. I was doing all this freelance writing wherever I could. Um, and, and I lost that job just because the paper folded. And, and I hit, sort of hit a brick wall. And I kicked around for about a year, year and a half, um, freelancing and trying to make it. And I was just reaching the point. Uh, I had a job. I lived in Florida for a while. I came up to New York for a job. Two weeks into this job, uh, this it was a new publication, lost its funding. I lost my job. I really went off the deep end into a sort of a, you know, I was just really depressed. And so I thought, well, I guess this just isn't working. I got to like, you know, I can't be making $10,000 a year for much longer. Um, and, 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 you know, I'd done all kinds of other jobs during that time. I worked at record stores. I did door-to-door -door knocking um, for environmental organizations, um, you know, whatever I could do. And then uh, I started applying to grad school. I was going to become a teacher. And kind of out of the blue, 
I got a call from Brad Talinsky and offered the job as the managing editor of Guitar World magazine. Um, obviously, a couple of things had happened in between there is that he even knew I existed. I had done a little bit of writing for them, um, but I wasn't anticipating it as a job at all. And um, there was still a long and winding road from there, but that's what really put me on the path to, to doing what I do. So, um, and, and interestingly, the key article that got me hired by Brad or got his attention wasn't really um, what I wrote for him, which were just a couple little record reviews, but it was a big piece on the Almond Brothers when they had just reformed and were putting out seven turns. Um, and I wrote about them for Tower Pulse magazine, which was the free magazine in, in Tower Records. So, um, that so so buddy guy turned turned my life around that time getting me into music and then the Almond Brothers band you know really turned my life around because I loved them and I did have a lot of time because I was so gainfully underemployed I threw myself into that with with so much passion and gusto uh, that it, it you know it led to good things so I I think most people who end up successful in in any field it, there's a similar story where it's a combination of hard work and good luck. Um, you really need both. I mean, you, you know, the luck won't happen if you haven't put in the work and developed your craft and, and grinded out a little bit. But, you know, a lot of people do the work and grind and get good at things and don't have the luck. So I, I, I feel uh, thankful that I got that both, had both. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. So I'm already feeling some kinship with you because you talk about the like the conversations between musicians. And I don't know if this is a question more like an observation, but like I'm finding out as a podcaster, we're finding out, you know, it's becoming so common for the other podcasters. They're musicians at some level. So I don't know if that's like the same for similar to authors where, you know, you have musicians on all levels and especially ones who are famous and popular and all that. But you know, for those that don't get to that point or even a point under that, it's there's a drive to do something 
that's in the musical community and for us to labor love. So I think that's more of an observation than a question. If yeah, you get anything no, I, that. I mean, there's a fraternity of musicians and, and a fraternal feeling. And um, I think you can be a part of that um, with your musician at, at any level. And, um, you know, I've been fortunate again, um, you, you know, kind of a crazy thing for me is that I didn't really become an actively gigging performing musician um, until I was 40 um, and living in China. And it all happened because I was in Beijing. I mean, I had certainly played gigs uh, and stuff, but it was more like sitting in with friends, bands, playing, put together bands for parties and stuff like that. Um, more so than like having my own band and certainly being a front man. Like I would step up and sing a song here or there. Um, but I found myself suddenly in China in this unusual situation where I met these great Chinese musicians and uh, they liked the way I sang and played. And so we started doing a little gigging and, it, you know, one thing led to another. Um, and then we became a pretty popular band. We ended up touring all over China. We wrote and recorded an album uh, called Beijing Blues. Uh, we appeared on Chinese radio and TV and it was just wild. I mean, I, I stuff I never, ever thought would happen, but um it got into my blood. And then when I came back and I went back to some of this writing, I mean, I, I certainly did find that being a more experienced musician, um, obviously I had unusual experiences in China, but at the same time, it's all the same. It's still a gig. You go, you set up, you play, you read the audience, you interact with one another as band. Um, and, and having, and, and then I recorded, I had never recorded original music before, uh, other than, you know, little things in my bedroom. Of course I had done that, but uh, being in a real studio and everything. And so it really deepened my ability to do, to, to do my, the, the depth of my interviews, I would say. Um, and it's just been a, a continuous process since then. Uh, 2017, I formed Friends of the Brothers uh, with Andy Allador and Junior Mac uh, and Peter Levin, the keyboardist. We were the, the four original members. Uh, Peter moved to Nashville. We're all in the New York area. So he still plays with us when it works. But um, and uh, I basically became the manager and the booking agent. Thankfully, we now have a booking agent. But um, I've had to deal with uh, all of that. You know, I, I became the tour manager, the manager, the personal psychiatric counselor. Which so is, what is Andy's role? Just play guitar, not do anything else? Where's his fair share? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, you know, there are some I'm texting him. I'm saying Alan yeah. Paul said you're lazy. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's not, uh, certainly Andy's not lazy. I mean, listen, none of us are lazy. None of us would be doing what we do if we were lazy. But, right. you know, everyone has a role in the band. And uh, Andy has his own band and he does all that stuff for his band. Yep. It just sort of fell on me because I was the one who first put it together. Right. Uh, and and, and it's, it's funny because a lot of the times uh, when we're on the stage, Andy's pretty much the band leader. I mean, I, I think anyone who's ever played any music knows that somebody has to be in charge. Um, and, and and for us, it's almost always Andy. There are some songs and places where Junior takes the lead, um, but, but basically it's Andy. Um, and I deal with all the other stuff up to that. And it's not because Andy's lazy. It's because no one wants to yeah. do that. <laughs> we know he's not lazy. I just want to take a dab at him because I, I know he's going to listen. I established myself as the guy doing that. And everyone's always happy to have someone else doing it. Of course. Uh, yeah, right? that's the grunt work of setting things up. The non-glamorous angle yeah. of music. Yeah. yeah. It's sort of the road manager angle. And, uh, you know, that, that's why when bands are successful and have enough budget, they have a road manager. So one of them doesn't have to do that stuff. 
Yeah, because we talked to a lot of independent, you know, most bands these days are independent bands, especially the up and coming ones, and they got to wear many hats. It's not, it's not a lot of fun for people, but it's the only way you can stay on the road. Yeah, that's right. And I'm glad you understand that. And I hope people who, who listen understand it's like whenever we post a show that we're going to go outside of our home base, people are always like, come to Chicago, come to Evanston, you know, wherever. And, um, you know, we would love to go to a lot of those places, but, um, the, the, the realities of getting out and going to, you know, on the road, it's really difficult. We do do it. Um, and we're, mm-hmm. we're happy. It's, it's fun. Um, but it's, it's grinding and it's grueling and, you know, we're not 25. We're not like piling into a hotel room together and things like that. <laughs> those days are over for us. We've, we've all been there, done that in different situations. So. <laughs> hey, going back to the, the China and your kind of the, the yeah. music thing going off in China, were you there as part of covering the Olympics or like, why were you in China? Um, yeah, no. Uh, so I did end up covering the Olympics actually, which, okay. was, which was really fun, but that was like my third year into, we got, went there in 2005, the Olympics were in 2008. Um, and I, I had established myself enough doing other stuff that I was able to get a really cool gig with NBC sports, uh, working for them. No, we moved to China because my wife um, is a journalist and she worked at the Wall Street Journal at the time. And she became the China bureau chief for the Wall Street Journal okay. based in Beijing. And it was another thing, you know, I, I mentioned good luck. I mean, we've had some really serendipitous luck, like you know, by the basic standards of uh, how they had done things, she wasn't really qualified for that job. They had uh, real China experts go and do that. Um, just for uh, fluky reasons, there was no one available that fit that bill and the, except for one person. And he couldn't do it because he had gotten in some hot water with the Chinese government uh, in a previous stint <laughs> as, I guess, a reporter, and they wouldn't give him a visa. So hmm. he was out. And once that happened, they had nowhere to turn. And um, she was doing really well, uh, you know, as an editor. Uh, and so they just decided basically to do something different. Uh, instead of having a China expert, hey, let's send over a person we trust and just assume that, that you know, they'll get it to, they'll figure out China. Um, she wasn't even going to tell me about it because she didn't think I would move. Um, and, and it wasn't based on nothing. I, I had refused to move or even consider moving not, not that long before to San, like San Francisco and Washington, D.C. Uh, and, and so she was pretty shocked when, uh, you know, she just sort of casually mentioned to a friend, not even that she was going to go for the job or anything, but that, um, you know, because the, the person had asked, what are you going to do next? What's your next job going to be at the journal? And she said, oh, I don't know. There's always something. It's an international organization. They just posted a job in China, for God's sakes. And she was just saying it as this, like, there's always something wacky happening. And um, I shocked her by jumping in and saying, hey, maybe you should apply for that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I had no idea. It was just it was just a gut instinct um, that, that you know, proved to be a, a really good one. Yeah, I want to go. I'm going to go back to your guitar playing and your music career real fast. We'll eventually get to the book. Yeah, you've been on. The, you're on the state of America. They'll, they'll promote your book. We you don't need to promote it here. Uh, but the reason I'm asking, because. Your musical career is very similar to mine. Like I didn't pick up the guitar until I was in college. I, I had played a lot of sports growing up and this sort of took my time and attention. Always loved music. So started learning, you know, pretty much later in life. Um, but for you, though, not only did you learn later, but you started playing like Allman Brothers band music with not being, you know, the traditionally early trained 
guitar player, how hard was it for you to tra transition to playing like Almond Brothers? Because that's not necessarily yeah. all that easy stuff through the rhythms or anything else. Yeah. Well, uh, you, you, I mean, that's not exactly true. I, I, I mean, I, I played a lot of stuff before I played the Almond Brothers. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I did, I did play more that I'm sort of letting on, but not, not really. I mean, I, okay. My, my playing was like, so I was, I, like I said, I was friends with a lot of musicians. I knew my way around a guitar, um, like sort of cowboy chords. And um, I sure. always had a pretty good right hand, uh, pretty good rhythm, you know, which was helpful. One of the things I never did as a guitarist that is certainly limiting is, um, and, and this is something I came to realize with uh, pretty early, but certainly the more I developed relationships with friends and interviewed musicians, I never had that compulsive thing where I played eight, 10, 12 hours a day. Um, and that's what Andy did. That's what Dickie Betts did. And I mean, mm -hmm. every guitarist that we basically are going to sit around and talk about and interview at some point or another did something like that. So yeah. um, I never had that compulsion. I did that with writing. I mean, I did that with reading and writing. I, I spent tons of time focused. So um, when I got hired at Guitar World, I was uh, 24. I, I did, uh, you know, I had played guitar a fair amount, but I had never really focused on it. And I was embarrassed um, because everybody there was such a great player. So I started taking lessons um, initially from just, you know, someone I, I met uh, in the city and then from Jimmy Brown, the great uh, Guitar World uh, music editor, which mm -hmm. was you know, he was brilliant at it and and it was easy for me because we could do it at work and we'd both come in a half hour early or whatever. And all the teachers would tell me like they would they'd be a little confused because they would teach me advanced things that I couldn't really do. But I sounded like I could do it like I was always pretty good if I stayed in my lane. So like, do you know, does that make any sense? Like I could mm -hmm. play things really well because I did yeah. have a good right hand. You weren't doing Van Halen stuff, but you could play kind no, of the bluesier, no. like the standard rock. Yeah, but I also never had any attraction to Van Halen stuff. Um, you know, I, I, I people are surprised by like how little rock and roll I really listen to. <laughs> like on my own, I'm not much of a, a rocker. Um, Skinner being an exception. I just love Skinner. Um I lean more towards uh, blues and country and jazz. You know, I listen to Outlaw Country in my car all the time. Um, Hence the know. Blackberry Smoke fan. Yeah, I love I love Blackberry Smoke, um, and I love. Actually, not that's the best live band yeah. other than you guys playing yeah. right now. Charlie's a good friend. I'm always telling Charlie let it rip a little more. Um, he's he's an incredible guitar player. Mm -hmm. I, I would actually love to hear him let loose uh, more often, but. Yeah, they're a great band. Uh, they play really, really well together, which is the essence of a band. So, yeah, I was always leaned more that way than than like Van Halen way. I mean, I, I could admire that playing certainly, but I yeah. never, I never tried. I never even tried to do that. Um, I certainly would have failed, but uh, but but I never even tried. But like but, staying in your lane, though, it's like I know I'm yeah. good at blues and country rock. This yeah, is what and, we're and when I when I got to um, uh, China. I was sort of thrown into the deep end. I mean, the way I first um, played with these guys, with, with well, with one guy who was became my partner, his name was Woody Wu. He was a brilliant um, lap steel player. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I had gone to China and met this Chinese guy. He had a tattoo of Stevie Ray Vaughan on his left arm and played lap steel, and he really played it. Um, and he had a guitar repair shop. I had bought a new Epiphone 335 um, mm -hmm. summer visit home that I just loved. 
And when I got back to China and opened the case, the headstock was cracked off. Oh, of course it was. Yeah, I was really uh, bummed out. So I kind of, I was so depressed by it. I just threw it back in the case under my desk for about a month. And then I was like, and I got to do something with this. And so, you know, that's a very repairable thing yeah, um, yeah. if you have a good luthier. So I thought, well, how am I going to find someone in, in Beijing? So I started asking a couple of people I thought would know. They recommended Woody, who had just come back from living in uh, Australia for a few years. And so he spoke good English. Um, I brought it down. I met him. He had the Stevie Ray tattoo. I couldn't believe it. He had looked me up online because I mentioned Guitar World and saw all these people I'd interviewed and, you know, was fascinated to meet me. He he was amazed that, you know, a guy who wrote for Guitar World and had interviewed all these people he liked. And I had written the liner notes in the Stevie Ray box that showed up at his guitar shop in Beijing. And I was amazed that I had found this Chinese guy who had a Stevie Ray Vaughn tattoo. So we, we were happy to meet each other. Um, he called me when the guitar was ready and he said, um, yeah, your, your guitar's ready. I have a kind of a, a gig with a cool band on Wednesday. You know, would you like to come pick it up there? You could check us out. So I said, uh, yeah, great. And I was just happy to have this friend. I thought, you know, he could show me around, um, you know, check the music scene. I was ready to go to some clubs with him and stuff. And I met him there. He had the guitar. We, we looked at it and everything. We tuned it up. I played it. It was great. And then he said, um, what would you like to sit in on a song? So I said, um, sure. So we 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 picked an amp, we plugged it in, and I said, just please, you know, call me up on on something that's a repetitive structure, you know, has like a twelve bar progression, and yeah, you know, give me give me an easy key, you know, like make it an E or A or something, and you know, because so so they did that, and I, I got up and I played. It was a very it was an original song. Uh, this band had a very charismatic lead singer. Um, and I, I I played I played a solo and it was a very Pink Floydy song it was cool I felt good about it and uh, put the guitar down and went back to my seat and um, you know I felt really pleased that I had pulled that off and um, and it was, I was just having fun and then uh, later in the show the lead singer introduced me um, he was speaking in Chinese and my Chinese was decent at that point I could understand most of what he was saying he said uh, we're very honored to have a special guest here tonight an important American rock and roll journalist uh, Mr. Alan Paul and they kind of pointed at me and I, I stood up and I did a little wave and people clapped and I thought well that's nice you know wow you know this is cool and then you know I sat back down and then he said some more stuff in Chinese that I didn't exactly follow and and then he kind of walked off the stage and the rest of the band stayed up there and everyone was looking at me and I realized he had invited me up and just given me the band. Um, and so I was terrified. I had a little bit of a fight or flight impulse. I mean, honest to God, if my guitar hadn't been on stage, I might have like, ran. <laughs> but uh, there was no way I was leaving that guitar and I would never would have been had the, you know, I would have been embarrassed to ever see Woody again. So um, I went up. I didn't really know what I was going to do. And um, I, I think I called Dead Flowers. Woody said he knew it. I was just trying to think of songs that yeah. good, good with groove, yeah. you know, good groove, although there are some, you know, it's not a hard song, but it's also not exactly yeah. repetitive chord changes. Anyway, we did that. I don't have a recording of it, so I don't know what it really sounded like, but it felt pretty good. And then I did a Deep Ellen Blues, um, you know, because yep. that this song I was comfortable singing and playing. And, and then I did a really uh, 
dumbed down version of Southbound by the Allman Brothers. And, um, you know, I just played it as like a straight uh, one, four, five and C. And, you know, I felt fine. I felt good about it. Um, just that it hadn't like blown up in my face, you know, especially on being thrown on the spot. And afterwards, Woody, you know, we were in touch and he said, I thought your playing and singing was great. Let's let's do some more together. Um, and, and that's just what led to one thing led to another. And, 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 you know, we, we played with different people. Eventually he brought in this incredible rhythm section. Um, you know, I think once he felt comfortable that, that we were getting somewhere and that, that, that it became really a, a cool thing that was totally unexpected. And, um, I, I, one thing I regret is we, we only just barely started playing Statesboro blues. We didn't really play any Almond brothers and I wish I had played a lot more of it. Uh, it's the one person that I was always intimidated to sing was Greg Allman. Um, mm -hmm. I felt like when I sing a song, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not a great singer, um, but like the guitar playing, if you know your limitations and sing within them, you can often, you know, do a good job um, or do an acceptable job. Um, and, uh, <laughs> but with Greg, you know, if I, if I sing those songs, I would just hear Greg's voice in my head and sound terrible to me what I was doing. <laughs> but uh, yeah. I, I would overcome that a bit because uh, after One Way Out came out, I was back here uh, in the U.S. I had my own band and people I realized were coming to the band. A lot of them were Allman Brothers fans who read my book and they just wanted to hear some Allman Brothers. So I had to give the people what they want. And I got over that a little bit. So. Um, yeah, it was, it was an amazing experience uh, that was, again, completely unexpected. I did not go over there and say, I'm going to make a band and I'm going to do something big. <laughs> no, it just it just happened. Brian and, and Alan, I mean, this is all respect. Brian, Alan is like the Forrest Gump of music and journalism. He just shows up at the right place at the right time and all these <laughs> events that happen around. Nothing about the intelligence. That's not what I'm talking about. Just showing up at the proper place in history. Yeah, there, there's something to that. Um, you know, there's a B.B. King song, uh, You Better Not Look Down If You Want to Keep on Flying. And I love that song. Um, great, great groove and great song, even though there's not much to it except the chorus. Um, but um, when I was in China and that was happening and, and, and we were just having so much personal success and just having really, really good time, frankly, um, I would sometimes think, how is this all happening? And then I would just say, don't think about it. You know, you better not look down if you want to keep on flying. And and uh, that's that's how I just feel with all this stuff. I I don't I don't I really try not to think about it too much. Um, I'm pretty instinctual. Um, um you know, uh, luckily I mostly have good instincts. It, I certainly have made mistakes uh, in both my personal and professional life. So it's not infall infallible. That's how you learn and get better though. If you don't make yeah, mistakes. You that's don't right. Yeah. I try, I try to be self-reflective when that, when something goes wrong, that's right. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been, it's, it's, it has been sometimes a Forrest Gumpian. Uh, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm not offended. I, I do know what you mean. And, uh, I, like I said, I think at the beginning, I, I, I understand that, amount of the um, percentage of things that are just good fortune. Um, and, and I do think it's, you know, I, I do tend to treat people well. I, I try to. Um, so I, I do believe a little bit in karma, um, not exclusively because we all know people who have been wonderful people who have yep. horrible things yeah. them. Not, nothing protects you. Um, and, and so there is, you know, I'm appreciative of that, but I, but I just try to, you know, live a pretty good life in the way I treat people and 
hopefully if, if you know that's played a role i hope but who knows maybe it's all just luck well the interactions i've had with you on social media it doesn't seem like people are like screaming at you and stuff too so uh before we get in the book which is the reason you're here i want to talk almond brothers and blackberry smoke real fast just because that's a we all love those guys and those bands is there a better band right now covering like Allman Brothers music than Blackberry Smoke? Um, well, oh, I mean, Government Mule, but that's kind of cheap because Warren was in. Yeah, I mean, listen, I would love to hear, I'd like to hear Derek Trucks or or Warren play at any time. Um, One of the reasons I formed Friends of the Brothers was simply because I love hearing Andy and Junior Mac play. Yeah. Um, I wanted to hear them play together. So I created a situation where they play together and they're stuck with playing with me. Um, well, you can't choose your own band. You got to choose somebody else. <laughs> no, no, I know. But, uh, I, I, but, but the more I've played with them, the more I appreciate the intricacies of yeah. what they're doing. Um, Blackberry Smoke are fantastic. They have their own approach to things. Um, n- not just covering the Allman Brothers, but anything they cover. I mentioned Deep Ellen Blues. I love the version yeah. of Deep Ellen Blues. They do. Um, it's not like they radically change it. Um, but he puts a little different riff in and makes it his own. Um, Fairies Chuck, wear boots. I've heard him play live from Black Sabbath. I've never heard him do that, but I can totally oh, imagine. Really? Uh, yeah. And, and yeah, Charlie is a great guitar player and he's like us. You know, Charlie could be right in here having this conversation. And that's sure. part of it. So is Warren Haynes, for that matter. And, you know, that that's part of why they do cover so well. Um, they know... And, and it's part of why the Allman Brothers did cover so well. I mean, remember yeah. they started off with "Trouble No More," which is a Muddy Water song. Any um, blues band, you have to you have to do covers. With and, Zeppelin, you know, all those guys do it. Yeah, and, and it's it's uh, yeah, but Zeppelin didn't always admit they were covers. They had, to, <laughs> they had to, yeah, but Greta Van Fleet is getting Zeppelin back yeah. now by being influenced by Zeppelin yeah. but not admitting it. And I like but, Greta uh, Van Fleet. I'll but, preempt that. Um, yeah, no, but but that's part of what, what what you know what what makes them so good at it is you know Charlie Warren. These guys are huge fans. I mean, right. they can sit here and have these conversations with us, and they have listened to the music so much, and they have developed their own personal style in their original music, and because of their respect and love and deep insiderness of the music, when they play it, they know exactly where to strike find that line i mean i don't think they even have to think about it that much it's 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 instinctual um how to express themselves not do a rote cover um but not take it so far that they're doing anything other than respecting the song and and making it um better better just meaning personal you know and 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 you know yeah charlie i don't know if any of you i'm sure you've heard him play acoustic i mean he's a really cool Mm -hmm. bluegrass picker and yep. you don't hear that directly in most Blackberry Smoke songs, but I think if you know that, it makes sense, and you can hear it. And um, yeah, Warren is the same way. Not not in terms of being a bluegrass player, but um, these guys have a lot of tools in their toolkit, and so they can just oh, yeah. throw one little bluegrass style lick into a rock solo. And if you're not like analyzing it, you know you wouldn't even notice it's there. But it's part of what makes it unique and makes it themselves. The other thing I just wanted to add real quick, you talking about Charlie, I know we're talking about the Almonds, but uh, they do just a, a, the stellar version of working working for MCA, where Charlie, yeah. just, he's got the same nuances as Ronnie when he's singing, but yeah. I just had to mention that real quick. Yeah, no, I, it's the same thing. I mean, it, you know, he, appro- he Charlie's also a great singer, and I think he approaches his singing very much the way he approaches his guitar playing, which is um, he's going to honor the original 
without trying to mimic it. Well, Blackberry Spoke is set up very similarly as the Allman Brothers band, where you've got multiple percussionists, two or three guitar players, you know, so it's definitely, they're not trying to be, trying to be the Allman Brothers band by any means, but they've got a similar setup. And when they cover them, like take the Stone record they did was so great. Like it, it just works. Yeah. You guys got me really wanting to go uh, see Blackberry Smoke now. <laughs> <laughs> I always want to see Blackberry Smoke. I yeah, always do. Yeah. I was hoping, you know, I'm going to be in Atlanta um, on July 28th doing this great event at City Winery with um, End of the Line Band because it was too logistically difficult to bring Friends of the Brothers out. End of the Line is also a great Almond Brothers tribute band. Uh, love them and friendly with the guys. So I'm excited about that. I've been talking to Charlie for a long time about him being a guest there, but um, they're, yeah, they're going to be uh, playing at the Caverns in Knoxville. So he won't be there, but uh, Tommy Talton of Cowboy is going to be playing with us and uh, Valor Trucks, um, you know, who's Butch's son and who's the little kid on the cover of Brothers and Sisters. So I think that's pretty cool. And we have another special guest who we can't announce because he's got a, he's got another, his own personal gig, but I'm excited about it. Awesome. Well, that is a perfect segue into talking about this new book. Now, you've already written one book about the Allman Brothers Band, which is fantastic. One Way Out, The Inside History of the Allman Brothers Band. Fantastic. Loved it. You've got this new book out now, and I'm going to show it, even though nobody can see it because it's audio. Brothers and Sisters, the Allman Brothers Band, Inside History, the album that defined the 70s. So my question is, we've already written one fantastic book about the Allman Brothers Band. What drove you to write another book, particularly about this record? You know, um, I, I mentioned briefly Brad Talinsky before, who was the editor of Guitar World, who hired me and, and, and Andy and I both worked with for years. And Brad and I are great friends and we have been since since that day, you know, 1991. So 30 plus year friendship, um, worked together for all these years. Uh, he advised each other on books. You know, he wrote a great book on Jimmy Page, on the history of the electric guitar and on Eddie Van Halen. Um I, I, you know, we've read each other's works. He read Brothers and Sisters in the works, but it was a conversation with him that really got me going. Uh, during the pandemic, we were talking about our next projects. And uh, I said, ah, I kind of want to get away from the Almond Brothers. <laughs> you know, I'm so locked into that. He said, oh, you're crazy, man. What, what are you doing? What are you, you're, don't run away from that. It's, it's awesome. You've got this expertise about a band that people love and that's an important band in rock history. You should embrace it. And I said, yeah, but I was thinking like maybe I should do an, a book on a film more East. And I realized I'm too late to catch the 50th anniversary. And he, and Brad was the one who said, oh, no, don't worry about it. Um, Brothers and Sisters is the album. That's the one that is underexplored. And then we talked about it for like an hour. And at the end of that conversation, I was completely convinced. And um so I called up a couple of people I really trust, like Kirk West, um, you know, who's one of my best friends, a longtime Almond Brothers tour mystic. And I called my agent, called eventually Bert Holman, the manager of the Almond Brothers band. Long story short, everybody I presented this to thought it was a great idea. Um, the final book became quite a bit different than what Brad and I had first talked about um, once I got going on it. But um, the concept of digging into brothers and sisters really came from Brad. So um, I owe him a big thank you. I'm doing a big launch event. Um, I mentioned Atlanta on 728. On 730, I'm going to be at City Winery in New York um, with Friends of the Brothers. Kirk is going to come up and be the MC. We have special guest Dwayne Betts, 
Dickie Sanders, oh. Lamar Williams yeah. Jr., uh, I think speaks for itself, Lamar Williams' son, uh, bass player on Brothers and mm-hmm. Sisters. Um, uh, Valor Trucks is going to be up in New York, so he's going to do both of those. He and I are the only ones who will be both in New York and Atlanta. Are, are tickets still available? And should I start tickets looking for flights still available. Uh, by the time this airs, they might not be. I, I checked tickets right before uh, we went on. There's about 100 left. Uh, and they're they're moving pretty quickly. So I, I, I hope that will sell out. I think it will. Um, and I got Brad to come and do a little because we're going to do an author talk at the beginning. Brad's going to interview me. So it's all my people are there. And, and, and you know, Brad deserves it because I wouldn't have done this without him. And it, it, it's an interesting situation with the Allman Brothers um, in that. Brothers and Sisters is by far their most uh, successful album. It's sold over. Which seven. I didn't know until I read this, but, you know, Ramblin' Man was such a hit. It kind of yeah, makes sense. That's right. Ramblin' Man was a huge hit. And remember, you know, just before it came out, they played Watkins Glen, 600,000 yep. people or so. With the dead. Yeah. And the band. Uh, and, and you know, they were, they were hitting so hard that six weeks before the dead and the Allman Brothers played, Watkins Glen, they played two shows at RFK Stadium in Washington, yep. D.C. Right before Watkins Glen, the Almond Brothers played two sold-out shows at Madison Square Garden. Uh, it's almost unthinkable. I mean, if they were having a festival like that now, um, you know, Watkins Glen to New York is only about three hours, I think. I mean, it would be considered the same market. You wouldn't be allowed to do that. Um, but it's reflective of how popular they were. And that was actually before um, Brothers and Sisters came out. So, they were building, you know, there was something happening there. Eda Peach had been quite successful that mm-hmm. uh, they had something moving, but, but the success of Ramblin' Man um, kicked, kicked that to the moon, you know, so where, the, where they became uh, an AM radio band. And um, for the younger people listening, um, you couldn't really understand <laughs> what it was like at that time when something was a hit. I mean, um you know, I mean, geez, Taylor Swift is just like massive, right? She's selling out. She sold out, I think, four nights at Giant Stadium or three nights here. I mean, she's just, uh, I think her or maybe Beyonce, probably the biggest stars we have right now. I don't know, Coldplay. And, Hill, and um, Harry Styles. All- yeah, but, but a vast majority of the population wouldn't know a single song by any of them. Yeah. Um, because things just aren't universal in the way they were because we were stuck with it i mean when a song became we didn't have that many listening options so when a song became a hit especially on am radio they would play it like every 45 minutes so not everyone might love the allman brothers at that time but everyone knew that song (laughs) it was just and so and, and that was the first time and really the only time that they had a song that that resonated like that um, so there was that and then it, it was uh you know a little bit more polished um uh sound i mean and the album also included jessica um right. you know which which wasn't an immediate hit um but, but it's I think a defining that, song in the allman brothers band yeah. the catalog of defining songs and i and it's another one that i think a lot of people even if they don't know the name of that song would know it because they play it coming in and out of baseball games and football i played games. it for my 20 year old son because we were listening to brothers and sisters over the weekend and he likes the Almond. i'm like you know the song it's like oh i've heard it of course yeah yeah, so they they broke through in a different way, and and it was the only period where they had that lineup with one guitar player, Dickie Betts, um, and a, and a piano player. 
Um, every other time they broke up at the end of this era in 76, which is more or less when the book ends. There's there's a little epilogue wrapping things up, but but the story really goes from it's not just about brothers and sisters. It starts basically when Dwayne dies. There's some history before that to make it make sense. But basically the, the book focuses on uh, the period from Dwayne's death in 1971 until their first breakup in 1976. And you know, they never had that lineup again with with a piano and a, a guitarist lead instrument. Um, they they never had the same, you know, huge commercial success. And uh, it, it's, just, it's just a very unique time. And yet it faded away um, for all that it ended sort of ugly. They were all fighting with each other. Their, their record label, Capricorn Records, fell apart. The live album that they put out, Wipe the Windows, uh, Check the Oil, uh, Dollar Gas, came out after they had broken up and so it was kind of like mocked i mean at the time we would go in record stores and that thing almost immediately they overprinted it and so we used to go to the bargain bin you know things would be like 2.99 and if it was a double album like that it would be 3.99 or 4.99 well it ended up in there like immediately because the band had sort of lost their juju and and they printed too many of them so um, because of that, people thought, oh, it's this bargain bin ripoff. You know, it's not the, why put out a live album when you have Fillmore East. Well, you know, geez, it turns out, go back and listen to it. It's a really good album. <laughs> the band was really good at that time. Um, but but for all these reasons, it just kind of got a little swept away that it was almost like this fluky thing. They'd been popular um, and people forgot how good they were and how interesting they were and how different they were. And on top of that, because they were so central to the culture, all these interesting people popped through, which was fun. You know, Geraldo Rivera, <laughs> Cher, yeah. you know, who, who Greg, of course. I blame was, Cher personally for the breakup of everything. <laughs> yeah, don't don't blame Cher. Uh, it was definitely not Cher's fault. Uh, if I, if but I can, Greg was in trouble with that, um, the criminal case and kind of everybody turned the back on him. And yeah, but but. Uh, that, that's that's right. Um, and I and I detailed that. I read the book. Yeah, thank you. I detail all that, as you know, in the book. But um, it, the truth is they were they were really on shaky grounds. Like if yeah. they had been stronger in that moment, um, that trial wouldn't have ended the band. Uh, the well, band people had chemical dependencies, drug and alcohol dependencies, too. Right. I'm sure that doesn't help. Yeah. And I, I think the bigger picture is I, I think anyone could relate to this. I mean, imagine what they went through. You know, they, they were very young when they 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 grinded it out. Then they they, they played 250, 300 nights a year. Um, they toured around in a van, sleep, you know, sitting head to foot, foot to head. Um, then they moved up to a Winnebago and they grinded it out. Um, Dwayne was the guy who kept them afloat and, and emotionally, uh, you know, vibrant and able to keep grinding like that. And then um, they just start to have some success. You know, things are building a little. I know South sold a little better than the debut, but still not super successful. They kept playing. They're getting more popular out on the road. And then they come out with that Fillmore East and it starts to become popular. And right as it hits gold, right as also Derek and the Domino's Layla, which Dwayne had played on, is starting to break. And people are starting to understand that it's not just Eric Clapton. And there's this moment where it seems like they're finally about to break through. They'd recorded half of their next album, which became Eat a Peach. Dwayne dies. Yeah. So they regroup. Um, they 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 initially thought they would take some time off, and then you know they all just gravitated back together. So they really didn't take any time off ultimately because that's how they grieved. And being at home just made them all want to you know be suicidal. It was it was unacceptable. So they got back together. They start playing. 
Um, they tour for a year as a five-man band, which I think is incredible. Um, there's some really good performances that year. They, the band has put out a really good archival release from Macon City Auditorium. I have a hard time listening to it. I know some people love it because it just sounds sad to me. I hear the hole there. Um, mm -hmm. But having said that, what they did was quite remarkable for a year, but they all knew something had to give. They didn't exactly know what to do. They didn't want to add another guitarist. Greg starts recording a solo album. Uh, Johnny Sandlin, the producer, pulls in Chuck Lavelle, uh, as was 19 or 20 year old at the time, piano phenom, to play on Greg's solo album. And Greg is like, holy crap, this guy is amazing. <laughs> and uh, they start having jams after those sessions. Butch and uh, uh, Butch Trucks and Dickie Betts would stop by the studio, Barry Oakley. JMO was working on the Greg album, so he was usually there. And they would start having these jams, and Chuck would be there. So he'd sit down and play. And boom, you know, as, as Butch Trucks said uh, to me, suddenly we could focus on what was there instead of what was missing. So uh, Chuck changed the dynamic. And so they invite him to join the band. Um, and then they, they do that. And as they start to get their feet on the ground again, Barry Oakley dies. Yep. Um, and, and Barry and Dwayne were hundred percent, the two leaders of the band, Barry, you know, it, it was as Tom Doucette, the harmonica player who was a quasi member of the band told me, uh, Dwayne made the orders. Barry got it done. Um, Barry had a little better people skills. He could he could talk to people in a more reasonable way. Dwayne was more dictatorial. So all of a sudden, they're both gone. Uh, they add Lamar Williams, who's J-Mo's best friend from childhood. And musically, they're great. They're in great shape. But then they have this huge success. What I'm getting at is by 1975, when they started to fall apart, they were exhausted. They were physically exhausted. They were struggling with uh, substance abuse. Not all of them, but most of them. Uh, and certainly Greg. Um, and I think the emotional weight of those deaths and what they went through getting it back together just started to catch up with them. Mm -hmm. um, they were able to sort of push it aside and plow forward for a certain time, but uh, it, it just caught up with them. They were exhausted physically and emotionally, and they were um, they were in mourning. I mean, I, I think any of us could relate to that. I mean, think about basically you're, you're in a family, you lose two members of the family, uh, in, in sort of shocking, horrific situations. Uh, you know, not like they'd been ill. It's like they're there and then they're gone and you just keep going. You just keep plowing forward. Eventually that's going to catch up with you. It's not like any of these guys were, you know, in therapy talking right. about uh, and working through their issues. I mean, their therapy was the music and it was the drugs and the, you know, women probably and whatever they, they just papered over their emotional trauma. You know, that that's, that's like, you know, 21st century speak, but um, I, I think it's pretty true. And I've, I've spoken at length to uh, everyone about that, especially uh, Chuck Lavelle, who of course is, is very insightful in, in JMO. Um, and, and I need to thank Chuck and JMO every chance I get, because they were both super, super available to me as I wrote this book. Um, you know, being able to email or text Chuck and just ask him a question was invaluable. And, and uh, Chuck and JMO also share a wonderful trait. They're, they're both have great memories and they both are willing to say, I don't remember. <laughs> it was not always the case. They don't lie. If they don't remember something or they're unclear on a date uh, or something, they just say so. So 
uh, that's actually more helpful than you know making things up. So uh, they they were both really available and really insightful. They're both um, very different personalities in each other, but both um, really smart, thoughtful, insightful guys. And Chuck, uh, amidst all the insanity, was one guy who never really had drug issues. Um, and so certain memories, I think, are a little a little more reliable from him than from others. Well, yeah, I certainly appreciate that you're focusing on this part of the band's career because for myself not unlike a lot of others you, you know we mostly familiar with the Fillmore East era and then when Alan Woody come into the band and and then later on with with uh Derek and O'Teal so and it's also it's kind of a it's a unique dynamic because you know those are the eras that that that, that I think people are probably the most familiar with but their commercial six their most commercial success is the era that you're focusing on now so I think it's yeah it's very um, cool what you're doing with this yeah thanks I mean I think when they reformed in 89 um with Warren Haynes on guitar and Alan Woody on bass um they made a very conscious decision to look back to the original Dwayne era band um they initially also did have Johnny Neal on piano who who could add some of cover some of the Chuck Lavelle stuff on on this era and other stuff but he only was in the band I think for 2 years um so most of the career going forward was that that original lineup of two guitars eventually they added uh, Mark Quinonez so the lineup was added, aided by a percussionist but um Dwayne had always wanted to do that Bobby Caldwell from Johnny Winter band um Dwayne loved and he would sit in with him all the time and he wanted to add him as a percussionist. So that was sort of a continuation of the vision Dwayne had had. And, and I think that that is part of why this era got a little bit forgotten. Um, they never, you know, if, if they had reformed in, in 89 and, and Chuck had, you know, by then Chuck was starting to play with the Rolling Stones, I think, or right mm -hmm. around. And then uh, basically became their musical director. I don't think there was ever a, a moment where they said, you're the musical director. It just happened. Um, but he's been doing that for well over 30 years as a musical director. He's been playing with them for, I think, she's close to 40 years or 35. Um, but if if they had reformed and say Chuck had been in the band and Warren wasn't, you know, uh, this era wouldn't have been as as forgotten, I think, because it would they would have continued it in that new era. But they they didn't. Um, Chuck never played with him again, I don't believe, until 2001 um, at the Beacon Shows, um, which was the, the first shows after uh, they had their parting of the ways with Dickie Betts in 2000. Um, they didn't really know, knew what they were going to do. And those initial uh, Beacon, they, they did the summer tour with uh, Jimmy Herring subbing in. And then Jimmy wasn't going to tour anymore. He just decided he didn't want to be the guy who replaced Dickie Betts. Um, he got a great offer from Phil Lesh you know, to be like a permanent member of the Lesson Friends at the time. So Jimmy was out and nobody knew what was going to happen. So in March 2021 is when they were first coming back to the Beacon. Uh, I'm sorry, March 2001, excuse me. And um, they added Warren, but Warren wouldn't commit to being a member of the band. You know, things had gotten pretty hairy and ugly by the time he left. And so he agreed to do it as a special guest um, with with the unspoken, well, not unspoken, unannounced publicly agreement that if it felt good and everyone was getting along and the music was good, he would become mm -hmm. a member again, which obviously is what ended up happening. But um, 
in that for those shows he was a special guest and chuck was a special guest for a bunch of the shows and uh that was really exciting i, I was at the shows where chuck played and you know it, it was cool but i mean he didn't play with them for all those years and until then uh and i don't believe i i i'd have to confirm this but i'm almost certain he never played another show with dickie because again when he returned for these shows uh 2001 it was after dickie was gone do you so the original Allman Brothers band, the two guitar lineup, Dickie Betts, Dwayne, and then the end, it's Greg and Derek. Or, or uh, is there is there a better like uh, if you really when I, when I, I'm bah, speak speak your words here? <laughs> Start out with two great guitarists. You end up with two awesome great guitarists at the end. It's I mean. Does any band end up doing that other than these guys? Because you got you, you know what I mean. You've yeah, got, I mean, Warren Haynes and you yeah, got Derek. I, I don't think so. And and also what they did that was really smart. You know, when they went and got Derek, um, I mean, I'm back up before Derek. Derek doesn't even exist yet for what I'm talking about. When they went and got yeah. Warren in in '89, Warren had been playing with uh, Dickie Betts for several years before right. the Brothers reformed. Yep. So Dickie knew exactly who Warren was and what he was getting. And the nature of the Allman Brothers band, going back to the very beginning. So Chuck Lavelle was the first uh, new member of the band. He was the first time that there had been anyone outside the original six members. If you go back to him, that, that was a little bit different because he wasn't replacing anyone. There had never been a piano player. You know, Greg right. played some piano, um, but basically an organ player. So there was no template for what he did. And then uh, Lamar comes in, replaces Barry Oakley. They never asked the guys coming in, starting then, to replicate that. They right. they always gave them freedom. So when Warren came in, obviously, if he's playing Statesboro Blues, um, he's going to play those Dwayne licks. Um, but he's not going to copy the solos. And then, of course, they were writing original music. And so uh, Warren is establishing his own template of his own sound and his own songs in the the, the Dwayne role. But he's not playing Dwayne. He's playing Warren. Um, that was that was set as as how they're going to approach things. And that's part of the keys to why they remained, you know, as vibrant as they did. They just they they didn't just get guys to come in. They could have found a lot of great guitarists who were competent, professional guitarists and, you know, to play the Dwayne parts. But they didn't do that. Um, they didn't do that with Warren. They didn't do that with Derek. They didn't do them with the great Jack Pearson, who was in there for a couple of years in between, who, who replaced Warren and then Derek replaced him. So um, and then Warren came back. So all of those guys are incredible players who had their own voice. Um, of course, they brought in O'Teal when, when Woody left. Um, another great young player um, who had his own style. And it's pretty unusual for a for a legacy band, you know, I, I think we could all agree one of the all-time great rock and roll bands um, to duplicate, um, to, to, you know, have new lives, have second lives, have different approaches. But again, that's part of why I thought this era was so interesting because that's what they did with Chuck. They brought mm -hmm. in Chuck and Lamar. They didn't just go and try. They could have got a bass player and said, learn these Barry Oakley lines and play them. They didn't do that. Lamar was a very different player. He was a little more rooted in R&B, and he tended to stay in the pocket more, um, whereas Barry was more from the Phil Lesh, uh, Jack Cassidy mode of, like, you know, free-range bass. Um, 
and of course chuck being the the, the biggest difference is replacing a great guitar player with a great piano player and 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 this is where they established that because you had the original band they were great they were what they were that ended and you know it was somebody said to me in the band it might have been jmo uh <laughs> what 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 was no longer is so now what is cannot be what it was <laughs> you got that <laughs> i mean so and, and jmo being the jazz guy that he is viewed it in a jazz way you know it's like miles davis was what he was with cannonball adderley and john coltrane they left and he ends up with you know wayne shorter um you know and herbie hancock and they're a new band they take new approaches you don't try to make those guys play like john coltrane um it, and and that's how jmo viewed it and i think i think it's a good way to look at it because it, it just makes sense nobody would expect you to tell uh, Wayne Shorter, no, you got to play like John Coltrane. And you don't tell Warren Haynes or Derek Trucks, you got to play like, uh, you know, Dwayne or anyone yeah. else. You trust a great musician to know how to find that line. You know, you're not, they're not going to like make up a new lick for Statesboro Blues. Um, you know, it, it's just that line of respecting the tradition, honoring it, and then kicking ass so that every night can be different and, and alive and vibrant. And I think that's probably why people, one, loved seeing them live. And two, like all the live albums or live performances are so popular because each one is very different from each other. They're similar, but different. Yeah. And 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 right. And and part of that means that there's going to be good nights and bad nights. Yeah. Now, also true. Yeah. The Allman Brothers, for the most part, kept a pretty high level of professionalism. Now, I have seen and heard some actual train wreck shows, um, but there's not a lot of them. There's really right. not. You know, the dead was more willing to just have some nights where, yeah, we're, you know, they're just like bad. Um, and, and and fans, for the most part, were willing to put up with that. It's kind of cool. It's, it's kind of interesting. It's like part of the quest for something special and different every night means that you're taking the risk that you made some bad decisions and things are going to go bad. The Elmer Brothers kept this real level of professionalism um, where they rarely were bad. Um, but within that, there were some nights that are just super, super inspired. And that comes from that that approach. Yeah, I think going back to your book, too, talking about the dead is that Watkins Glen performance where they did like the live soundtrack or sound check or whatever the day whenever they sounded great. And then the Grateful Dead actually played on the time the day they were supposed to. It wasn't very, very good. That's right. But they always talked about it as being a disaster. And um you know, the shows were never officially released, but they're very easily findable. Anyone who wants to go online and it's it's really not a disaster, but um, it, it it is true that their soundtrack show was far better. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. And Garcia like talk about that. You know, they 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 sort of laid eggs at the biggest things. You know, they were bad at Monterey Pop. They were really bad at Woodstock. They were so bad at Woodstock. They were so unhappy with it that they refused to allow it to be on the soundtrack or in the yeah. uh uh, movie so a lot of people don't even know they were there they erased themselves from the history because they were unhappy with their performance and they talked about Watkins Glen in that same way but um it, it's really not a terrible performance at all it's just it's just not exhilarating but you know it, it's interesting on these multiple shows that they did together um especially Watkins Glen and the RFK shows on June 6th on June 9th and 10th um the difference in their approaches are so obvious. The Allman Brothers play almost the same sets 
at all of them. They did, they're not exactly the same. There's some variation. And the dead play wildly different sets. Um, and so, the, you know, that was that was part of the dead aesthetic. Um, and I think that's part of what led to their sometimes being, you know, they laid an egg now and then, but they were going for it and they were playing different things. And I, I think there's, there's a value to both approaches. Yep. I know you got to go. So I have two things I got to get off real fast before you got to run, Alan. Um, one, I love the, I love the movie Almost Famous. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. I was very surprised to read in the book that I, you know, I'd always heard that Cameron Crowe wrote that movie based on his own experience. It's true, but it was more of a, an amalgamation of all these different bands. When I read your book, it is more like 90% the Almond Brothers band experience. And Russell, who was the guitar player in the movie, was actually the Greg Allman character, right? Who was the lead singer. And like, that was the whole, and it was very, yeah. very much an Allman Brothers experience. Yeah, um, right. Russell, who they made look so much like Dickie Betts, um, yeah. was more based on the experience with with Greg. Greg, I think I think the characters, the actual characters in in the in the and and I think Glenn Fry also from the Eagles. If you look at pictures, of sure, him, sure, yeah. look, but I think that the characters and some of the personalities express are composites of of different people. But yeah. the situation that he found himself in was completely from the Almond Brothers and. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm very, very pleased and proud of that chapter. Um, I think it's one of the best things I've ever written. Um, I reread it because I love the movie and all that story. Yeah. It was awesome. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. I, I, I do feel like, I, you know, I hope the whole book stands up, obviously, but I'm really confident that this chapter is going to delight people and stand up like that. Can, you can pull that out on its own and it's it's going to do great. Um it was amazing. Uh, Cameron Crowe bought into what I was doing. Um, I had interviewed him a little bit before, briefly. I uh, sent him some stuff, and he was really made himself available. I talked to him uh, multiple times. Um, I really, really appreciate uh, his willingness to um, be so available because, uh, you know, as you're, as I think it's making, I'm making clear and people who've read my stuff know when I tell something, I really get like to get deep inside it. And that yeah. wouldn't have been possible without uh, Cameron participating and also Neil Preston, who's a photographer. Um, and, and, and what's kind of cool is Neil who's so much of a character in that uh, story because he was with Cameron. They were partners really. And he was there. But for no plot, no role in the role, no role in the movie. <laughs> Right, that's true. Yeah, they eliminated him. That that is true. Um, but the, but Cameron and Neil are still very good friends, and Neil has been the still photographer on the movie set of every movie Cameron's ever made. But the cover photo on uh, Brothers and Sisters is by Neil Preston, and uh, I think that's really cool because you know he's part of the of the story too. Um, and yeah, I, I, everybody, I'm not going to give away exactly what happens. You got to read it, but you know, Greg uh, it opened up his heart to Cameron. Remember, this was only uh, two years after Dwayne died, but he had never talked about it in a meaningful way. He had never really addressed what it meant, um, how it affected him, how he had been able to continue, etc. And he just opened up to Cameron and um, then he regretted it and, and he tried to pull it back. And that's where that whole thing from Almost Famous comes, uh, where they, they deny the quotes and say that he made them up. Uh, you know, Greg just made it one step easier he stole the tapes from Cameron. <laughs> he, steal them. Right. he demanded Cameron give them back and and you know uh and and the the summary of what Cameron said which I thought was so interesting was basically um they were taking advantage of me because I was a kid 
but also I knew that they only talked to me and I was only there because I well, was like, he used it to his advantage and he was smart enough at that young age yeah. to know that. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, it's a fascinating story. And, and I, you know, I, again, I was just really, really happy to be. I could to... read a whole book about that piece. Cause I was so enthralled. Yeah, well, I love the, the time and the movie. Yeah. And I love the movie of course, too. And then, uh, you know, I've watched it many times and, and I love the Broadway play almost famous. Um, I saw it twice. Um, I did a story on Cameron for wall street journal when that was running. And, um, I was, I was disappointed that it closed. I know that they're working on like a traveling, uh, version of it. I hope that that comes huh. to fruition. I think that, uh, most people who love the, the movie would also love the play. So, um, I, I hope that more people out there outside of the New York area get a chance to to see it because it's 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 pretty cool. Dude, we get a lot of those traveling shows through Columbus, Ohio, and I would be absolutely game to see it if it shows up. Yeah, and I, again, I, I don't know what the status of it is, but I know they were working on making that happen, and I, I, I think it would be cool, and I hope it does. Well, Alan, I know you got to run. Thank you so much for your time, man. It's been a pleasure talking to you. We're going to have to have you back because we love the Almond Brothers Band. We love all the stuff that you cover and you do and you play with our friend Andy in a band. So maybe we can get both of you guys on a podcast sometime and Brian and I can just sit and mute our mics and let you go. I was thinking Let's... about that earlier. If you and Andy were on the same time, Jason, I yeah. was. Yeah, we would do it. Just point us in the right direction. You know, it's it's funny <laughs> because I joke about doing interviews, you know, um, obviously I've been on the other side of interviews a lot more, uh, especially before my first book came out. I mean, I had never really been on this side of an interview. Um, and so I, I know what it's like, and there, there's, there's people that you've got to have a list of questions and you better be ready, you know, because they've just answered the questions. And then there's people where you just say, uh, tell me about your new album and turn off the recorder in an hour. Um, and I guess Andy and I are both kind of like that. So you guys are seasoned veterans and know what you're doing. We talked to a lot of lesser known and newer artists too. And it's always a little bit more of a struggle. So we like guys who can come on or or guests who can come on and talk. Thank you. Well, Andy and I would love to do it together and um, appreciate your guys' support. I appreciate what you do. Obviously I, I love the bands that you guys love and that you talk about and support. And um, it's great. You know, I love doing podcast interviews because it's, um, talking to my people you know it's it's yeah. fans and um you know I, I i think uh in addition to the my my forrest gump luck um <laughs> we're gonna the, trademark that for you yeah, i think a part of the reason I, I you know i've been successful at this is i i really honestly i never lost that fan feeling and um i i never i try to never forget and uh, wherever I am and when I'm interviewing someone, I'm not there because I'm so great or whatever. I'm representing my readers and people and that that's who I'm trying to serve. And, you know, that's Cameron Crowe said almost the same thing. I mean, I almost cried when he said that um, almost verbatim because uh, I did not steal that idea from him. It's how I've always felt. And it's how he always felt. Um, and so we, we we bonded over that a little bit. We were kindred spirits because I, I really think that's true. Um and that's part of what Almost Famous is about. You know, the, the, the characters struggle with not getting sucked in, not, get, you know, you are, you don't want to become friends with them. That's what Lester Bangs is warning you. Right. Don't be, you know? and <laughs> they're it, not and your friends. It can be tricky. You know, it's like there are a handful of people. Warren is one of them that cross over to being friends. Um, 
and and I told Warren a long time ago because for a while we were both you know living in New York and we'd be out and we'd hang out a little bit and I could tell that sometimes he'd be a little uneasy talking around me and I I told him listen Warren if we're talking I'll never ever use something that we say if it's an interview is an interview and a talk to talk if I want to use something that you say uh, in this setting I'll ask you for permission and, and and we can have clarity and. If you say something you want to pull back in an interview, you can do that because I wanted to encourage people to speak freely. Um, but you know that's not the normal approach you take as as a journalist. It's just that you know in these in these um, rare but you know meaningful situations where things the relationship changes, I think it makes sense to change your approach a little bit to you know suit that. Absolutely. So everybody, Alan, thank you for being on. Go out and get Brothers and Sisters, the Allman Brothers Band, the Inside Story, the album that defines the 70s. Also, two other great books, um, Texas Flood, the Stevie Ray Vaughan story, and then One Way Out, Allman, the definitive Allman Brothers Band history. Yeah. So Alan, where, sorry, go ahead. No, I was. I think I was about to answer what you were saying without me. Uh, without you, where asking. do we go to get your book and find out more about where you write? Thank you. You can get my book anywhere that books are sold. You know, really. I mean, uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, your local bookseller, who I always encourage you to support. Um, you can get signed copies through the Big House uh, in Macon, Georgia, which is Merch Mountain, which is also Blackberry Smokes. Uh, Merch the Turner Brothers, yeah. Yeah, great guys who do a great job. Very good company. I'm selling. That's where I got this shirt. Awesome, yeah. I'm, I should be wearing that. I wear that all the time. I, uh, I'm selling signed books through, through Merch Mountain Big House and also through my local Words Maplewood Bookstore. Um, those ones can be personalized. You can find any of those online and um, I have a pretty active Facebook page. Um, you can find easy Alan Paul author and my website, alanpaul.net. And, and the main reason I would urge you right now to, to, to check that stuff out is I'm, I am doing appearances all over trying to get out there with this book and some really, really fun shows. And, and I always update whatever I'm doing on all those uh, online things. So if you see me out and about anyone listening, tell me you heard me here. Um, you'll be my friend. Um, I, I love to know where people come from, uh, how, how they heard about it. It, it. it truly is meaningful to me. And, um, you know, you can tell I love talking about this stuff. I love meeting people and, and you know, who share my passion. And it, it's one of the joys of doing this. Writing a book is is a lonely exercise. You sit in a oh, room sure. by yourself all the time. And then, you know, you get to do stuff like this and talk about it. And I get to go out and do shows and appearances and, and meet the people who are actually reading it it's it's really meaningful to me they never take it for granted so well i consider this side a brian we got to do a side b with alan some point for sure so thank okay. you so much for alan paul for coming on the book is brothers and sisters the almond brothers band and the inside story of the album that defined the 70s thank you alan so much for coming on man we really You're appreciate it. Thank you a great time thank you a big thanks to alan paul for coming on the podcast that's just uh super for us and and what a treat um, you know, like we said in the intro, just like Andy Eldor, just like Matt Wake, just like Andrew Daly, you know, just another uh, great, wonderful, you know, rock journalist, guitar player. Um, and uh, what just like I said, what a joy to talk to him. Uh, he had some very kind things to say about Charlie Starr, as you guys heard. Um, I certainly, I might tip my hat to him and. I can't wait to hear him on State of America and hopefully we'll get some crow stories out of that. 
Yeah, man, it was just such a pleasure to talk to him again. Alan, Alan is a New York Times bestselling author, so that's that's a good good gift for us, Brian. Like we're classing up to join a little bit. <laughs> I think so. I think so. We're getting places. But he had so many good stories from his history to all the Allman Brothers band stuff. Like we only had a little bit over an hour with him, and he was one of those guys, much like all the other other authors and people you named. We could talk to for hours. Like you look at your watch, and you can't believe an hour has gone by because there's so many other things that you wanted to get to. And I'm glad he's uh, shedding some light to that era in the band. You know, like I said, of course, I think a lot of people or a good number of people are, you know, very familiar with the original lineup and then with uh, with Warren Haynes and Alan Woody and then later with Warren and Derek and Oteil Burbridge. So it's great to hear about that kind of uh, era of the band in the middle there. Um, and, uh, you know, the the thing is it's weird because that's their their popularity peak yeah but and then they broke up immediately after they got like mega popular yeah and uh and i think you know but the lineups i think that, that get more appreciated is, is where they're more kind of not necessarily underground but you know not super yeah. worldly rock stars and the one the point I wanted to make, which I did so very poorly, where my mind just shattered and, and I <laughs> blanked out with it. It's like, you know, you start with Dwayne and Dickie and you end with Derek and Warren. Like, I don't think like what other band has had such top talent guitar players replace the like, you know, the original people like with yeah. pretty much the same it, level of it, ability. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I, I don't know. I I don't know if we can say that. Even the Crows, I don't think we can say that. No way. No, no, no way. Like they did not end or now who they're playing with is nowhere near. Right. Like what what Warren and, uh, you know, Derek Trucks were. So I I found that interesting. Like the bookends of the the Allman Brothers had the best guitar talent or arguably the best guitar talent you could have. And I would agree with that. So um, Thank everybody. Uh, thank everybody for listening. And always remember, Southern Rock is reverent. It loses blood. We'll see you next time.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 